Hi, Derek. It's Dave. How's it going? Good, man. How are you doing? I- I'm doing good. So, how are things there in St. Louis? They're they're going very well. Thanks for asking. They're going very well, professionally, personally. Can't complain. So, I'm going to go through and uh, just start asking you some questions. It's a bit chronological, just to get at your background and your experiences in Olympic style weightlifting. Uh, first, uh, how did you come across Olympic style weightlifting? Uh, what age were you? Uh, what were your early training sessions like? Okay. Um, let's see here. I was about 16, and I had been, I was a, at this point, I was like a junior in high school, or right before my junior year in high school. And I was doing some lifting in my basement in the garage, and could tell from, uh, from what I was reading that the high school program, the summer high school program, seemed to be for bigger guys that were a little bit slower. For instance, like half squats and bench presses and things like that. Um, and, uh, I just asked my dad, cause I was smaller and faster, like a hundred and what was I then about 140 pounds or 50 pounds, maybe soaking wet, um, in short five foot six, uh, but I was fast. So I asked my dad, you know, if he knew of anybody that taught weightlifting. And at the time I really didn't know of the clean and jerk and snatch. I can't honestly say that I knew of the clean and jerk and snatch, but I had seen some stuff on television of weightlifting back then they had ABC Wild World of Sports and I think weightlifting was in uh, on television and I seem to have some sort of vague memory of that anyway um, he said yeah I actually he had a friend that he wrestled with in high school actually it was his best friend which was Ted Frank and uh, so I'll, I'll take you down to the weightlifting club, Belleville Weightlifting Club and see what he has to offer went down there and he taught me the clean and jerk and at that time, it was just a clean and jerk, and I fell in love with it right at the right at the uh, beginning. I was like, "Ooh, I just love the movement." It feel it seemed like it was a emotional uh, satisfaction. It was like my little crack, is what I say. Back, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So that's how I got started, and I fell in love with it right away. And uh, what was Coach Frank's uh, programs like? Um. Let's see. The programs, physical programs themselves, were a lot of hang work, working huh. from the hang. It was uh, was it with straps? Yeah, it was with straps. So you, you learned to do hang snatch. Or hang, uh, first of all, I learned to clean for about at least a month, and I want to say maybe two or three months, but something like that. The hang power clean, hang power clean, hang power clean, squat, um, and these partial movements. He was a lifter in the 60s, and he was a nationally ranked lifter. I don't think he won, but no, he didn't win, but he was in the top three back in the 60s with the Tommy Kono era and all those guys. Um, and so he, back then, York was still strong, um, and they had a, it was very much a isometric training. We did a lot of those, partial squats plus full squats. Um, and we had a, let's see here, Mondays was snatch day when we learned to snatch then it was wednesday was jerk day and friday was clean day and they were all hang power snatches and then hang cleans and then we would front squat on days of let's see front squat on days of snatching and back squatting on days of uh snatching or cleaning because when you rest your shoulders and then there was a lot of these partial deadlift kind of things where you start from either 
three inches, six inches, 12 inches from the floor and, and lift and, and, you know, finish your movement. And, um, a lot of partial squats, meaning you'd start maybe at parallel and go up maybe six to nine inches, uh, eight to 12 inches, I think. So it was a very, you wouldn't go all the way up, but you'd go back down. So a lot of strength movements, pressing was important in bodybuilding. Okay. And you said you were a smaller guy at that time, junior in high school. Did you find you got big really quick? Um, no, no, not uh, during high school. I, I graduated high school at 165 pounds, and um, I gained weight after that. It was like 10 pounds a year for the next four years. That's when I hit my growth spurt, um, if you will. I never grew up tall, but I grew wider and broader. Did you focus on diet at all at this point, or you just ate what you ate? <laughs> I ate what I ate, and through Ted, we learned a lot of hard work. And we like to call it a humility training. In fact, that's what he called it, humility training, uh, meaning that um, it was, a, of course, the physical strength, but then there was this thing of mental strength. Um, and a lot of times guys just – back then there was no women training, okay? And uh, until you, you – uh, the guys would make fun of you, and uh, sometimes your face hurt. No, a lot of times my face hurt more so than – my muscles did from from weightlifting because it was it's just so much fun and that's part of the that was part of the allure of it was just three times a week man you're you're just laughing your the butt off uh, I'll try to keep it G rated here uh, yeah and, thank you <laughs> on, uh, until your you, your two or three hour training session was over um, but so it was a, a little bit of diet I think back then talking about diet was pretty much eat a lot of protein and, and back then the supplements just terrible you had bob hoffman's liver pills you had oh gosh glandular things that you had to chew and this was like chewing on bad tasting sawdust so, and the protein powder you go to a health food store and the guy was nice and everything and then maybe you'd get like good whole wheat bread that you know weighed a ton there was no options back then. There was no GNC. There was no Whole Foods. There was none of this stuff. So you had to uh, find out stuff. And, and Ted was big into like healthy living. So vitamins were, were big. Um, but mainly it's just mainly it was eating healthy and then taking these god awful uh, cod liver oil and, and liver pills and protein pills that were just <sighs> terrible. Um, even I today, I, I can't touch the protein powder as much as I want to. Add a weight gainer shake or something. I, I just has that taste to it. <laughs> we would mix, and that's where that's where the the it was kind of funny when Rocky came out in the eighties. I think that um, we were we were drinking raw eggs. Nobody heard of the salmonella or whatever you get from. Nobody heard of that. We were doing the raw egg thing plus peanut butter. You had to do that to mask the the horrible taste of the protein. Plus, it wouldn't mix. So if you mix enough stuff in there, chocolate powder. Um, chocolate liquid whatever then it could be palatable but ugh, it was it was terrible <laughs> okay so how about those uh first competitions what are your memories of those um i seem to get uh my first uh i seem to get a lot of attention and positive feedback early I was doing well um for a teenager, but I wasn't the best, but I, I competed like, um, I didn't compete that first summer, uh, until I, after football season ended. 
And I think in the spring there was a local competition. And that's when, uh, so I had probably a month or two before football started the first time. And then um, right afterwards, so I had another two or three months into training, I guess, eight months, something like that. It was the springtime. And um, the, the, I was able to, I guess the standard back then was pressing your body weight and uh, snatch, snatching your body weight was kind of a good thing. And the adults, if you're young, it was seemed reasonable to snatch your body weight. And there was also an incentive back then to snatch 135 pounds pretty quick because those were the full-size weights in the iron 45-pound plates. So um, I weighed 165 pounds then pretty much right off the bat. So I snatched body weight in my first competition. I think I clean and jerked 203. It was a combination of kilos and pounds and iron and bumper weights back then. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the feedback felt good. I had a lot of people watching me and giving me good positive feedback. And I th- think Tom Stock said that uh, I had a chance to become an Olympian. And I remember tears coming from my eyes wow. when I was riding my bike home from training, thinking that was a, that would be a dream come true. Uh, was that something you thought of as a, let's say, as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old? Did you think someday I'm going to be in the Olympics? or I watched, I do have a, member, a memory of Bob Beeman's uh, 29-foot uh, long jump. But um, thinking that would be pretty cool. But I always wanted to be a professional baseball player. I was a catcher and I had a good arm then, a rag arm now, but I had a pretty good arm and I wanted to be like Johnny Bench. Um, so athletics, I did want to be athletics. But in uh, fourth grade, that would be four plus five, nine or ten. Uh, so just a couple years later, I was practice, I was good at spring. We had old field days in grade school and a pretty big school system. And I was faster than all the kids. I could jump farther than the kids. Um so I, I thought that the Olympics would be pretty cool. And so I have to say that when I was in fourth grade, I did think about going to the Olympic Games. So how was it when you did start making uh, or saw yourself making the weights to get to national and even international competition? Did the training change in, in what ways or was it the same type of training? Let's see. Um, for... for uh, the way the training went, I was doing the the three times a, a week for quite a few years, but Carl Miller in Santa Fe, New Mexico, was having these training camps, and I was 18 and 19 at the time. This would be back in 78, 79, so a couple of years after I'd started. And he threw out the seeds of, of uh, technique and looking at weightlifting from a standpoint of perhaps a little smarter. There was a periodization. This all came from Bulgaria and the Soviet Union, from his work and what he brought back from touring Bulgaria and the Soviet Union. And many of the, in fact, many of the training systems today come from that era. So I was in on that really early, and so I'm very fortunate. So I started thinking about technique and talking with Carl and then also some other local guys who I looked up to, Mike Whitmer, whose son is Jeff, um, and a, Dave McGugan and a couple guys, uh, Dane Hussey and uh, a couple other guys in the in the St. Louis area who I looked up to, and they were training on Saturday. So I would add a Saturday program in there to do more full lifts. So that's the first morph of my training was so much from so much hang work. I was getting stronger, but my my uh, results in competition started to 
stagnate when I was about 20. Um, so I even upped then the technique training that I did. So more and more, so you can always get stronger, but I knew that I needed to fix my technique. And yeah, d definitely. I mean, that is such a key, and I think a lot of people don't realize. I mean, they see it on TV, and the snatch probably looks funny for someone who's a layman that's never done a snatch. But certainly, a lot of that lifting you see at the Olympic level, or like you were saying, back in the 70s, wide world of sports, it looks like a brute force thing. Mm -hmm. But but really, technique is such, it's so key. Yeah, you can never really do uh too much technique technique work uh, with um, any exercise, basically. So then uh, you competed Olympic Festival, Olympics, Pan Am, Senior Worlds. You competed at almost every major international competition or U.S. competition. Uh, what are your some of your fondest memories <laughs> from those competitions? Well, my my first. Um, uh, memory of an international competition was making the junior roll team and back then that was 1980 and the the quebec ontario or ontario wanted to uh secede from canada and so in, in montreal they didn't want to speak so i back then you weren't okay i'm 20 years old so i guess you could say i'm a minor or more or less and uh so they just give me a ticket to fly to montreal they wanted to secede from this union so i had to go by myself to Montreal, which was fine, but a Midwestern kid, first time out of basically, well, first time out of the States for sure, and probably only two plane flights before that. And then uh, they dropped me off at the airport, and I had to find my way to the University of Montreal by myself. And um, so they, the cab driver who finally, uh, I finally found a cab driver who would speak English, an older guy, and realized that I was pretty lost. And so he dropped me off, gave me instructions, but I was walking around uh, Montreal, and every street, I didn't know any French. I knew a little German, but I didn't know any French. And every street I saw was Rue. Rue Street this, Rue Street that. You know, Well, I didn't realize that Rue was street in French. So I was <laughs> way turned around. Finally, I get to the Junior Worlds, or the, comp, the, the, the hall. It was, it was quite an adventure, and they had lost my luggage. So, ah. and then uh, my fr at that competition was also going on the Iranian hostage crisis. That's and right. um, so, and the first picture I have of someone taking a picture of me was from an Iranian. And at that, really? in that competition, I realized that there's a big difference between politics and people. And, and talking with Iranians is like, okay, you're, all you know is what's on the news. And you think all Iranians are terrible people, blah, blah, blah. But it's no, it's the, so like I said, you learn the difference between um, the political structure or you're first introduced that there's a difference between the political structure of the world and also the, just the people in the world. So. Yeah, that's, that's funny because uh, when I was talking to Jim in the first interview, uh, he was saying the same thing. It, it's like when you're at an Olympics, you're at an international competition um, yeah, you're conditioned to think this person is my enemy because of some sort of political discord. But when you've got a love of sports, that all goes away. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. So I think, obviously, there's a role for politics, politics in the world, but uh, I think most of those people should be just gone and then uh, let the people run it. 
Yeah, yeah, there you go. Let the weightlifters run it. Yeah, athletes and uh, yeah, people who are really trying to help, you know, make the world a better place. And I think that sometimes gets lost. No, I know it gets lost. So you, you mentioned the Junior Worlds in 80, and then you were at the Senior Worlds in 82. What was that like? That was pretty cool. You're, you're lifted in front of, uh, we were in a hockey arena, which is, um, I think that they had 5,000 spectators. It was a eight to 10,000 arena, seat arena, and they had half of it for the, weight, the, the warm-up room and half of it for, for, the, for the, um, the, the venue. And so that, that was pretty cool. Uh, I met so many uh, good lifters from the Soviet Union back then, and who Pisarenko, Anatoly Pisarenko was the super heavyweight champion in the world. He was friends with Jeff Michaels, and we roomed together. So Pisarenko's in our room, just kind of, we're just BSing, and uh, he's in the room in a squat position. Just, and he, he's looking at his from one shoulder to the next. He is the widest man I've ever met in my life. It was a, uh, it was pretty <laughs> impressive. I traded sweats with a Swedish guy there, uh, which aggravated our coach because I did it before our team photo. So I had to hurry up and scramble to get <laughs> get the sweats back. And they gave them back to him. The funny, and I had I had not forgotten the story, but it was kind of buried. But uh, just uh, about a month or two ago, no, about a month ago, in uh, Orlando, Florida, of all places, I met a Swedish a Swedish guy who was in the 110 kilo class back then, who remembered the story. And I had traded with a 75 kilo lifter, and it was, uh, um, and he ended up giving him to his girlfriend. He said he knew the whole story, so that was great. Yeah, small world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and okay, get, getting you back now to the training side of things. Uh, as you worked up to the '84 Olympics, um, and what was that like? What was the buildup? Uh, what were some of the thoughts going through your head? How was the preparation for the '84 Olympics? Um. That's a that's what led to all my injuries and stuff. But I have to say, in '83, I was training like a madman, and in eight, 1983, I broke the spinous process in my back and caused a lot of back pain. And I was there was prescribed, among other things, uh, high doses of prednisone and uh, oral oral prednisone. So it was about eighty five. I was 82 and a half kilo lifter then, so I was uh, taking 85 milligrams of prednisone a day for a year. I started to have, we were, okay, so I started to have knee pain. We were training intensely two and three times a day. Um, okay. Five. How, how many days a week? Five, five days? Five days, and our off day okay. would be um, would be Thursday, and our off day a lot of times consisted of a, a, either a bike ride or a hike. And um, probably not the best thing, it could be argued, because these were like 50-mile rides um, or, or arduous hiking. And in the wintertime, we did cross-country skiing. I wasn't allowed to downhill ski, cause, and I bought into that fine because I'd see too many people with ligament damage after, you know, twisting their knee and all that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. But we were training that much. Um, I think one of those days, Saturday was one time a day. Uh, Sunday was off. Thursday was off, like I said, and then um, I think Tuesday was two were yeah Tuesday and Thursday were two shorter ones, and Monday, Wednesday, and Friday were two uh, harder ones, uh, two times a day, and those were harder. Okay. We would do some track activities in the morning at, at like seven o'clock uh, to to warm up, like shot put throws, sprints, long jumps, things like that. 
Ah, okay. So, so you really had kind of. Uh, it surprises me to hear about the other things. I would have thought you would have been just focused on the lifts, but it seems like you were doing uh, just a general physical fitness kind of thing. Everything, right? Yeah. Everything was, uh, although everything was emphasis emphasized on power and explosiveness. In other words, we would do something, you know, like a shot put through, say, or a long jump, or even a sprint. Then we would maybe jog slowly back to the beginning or walk back and then do it again. But we'd have, so there was some, what do you call it, uh, attention to the work-rest ratios, one to five, one to six, maybe one to ten work-rest ratio kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, we were doing a lot of this general prep stuff during our uh, during our, our peaking cycle. And they got a little bit more, they, they kept up intensity, but maybe less volume perhaps towards Towards bigger contests, of course, littler contest it was uh, not such a, a issue. But see, what was happening was a lot of this stuff, general prep, was all coming over from the Soviet Union. So no one knew how to schedule this at the time. So we were kind of guinea pigs out there at the time. It was fun. How about the mental, psychological? Was there a lot of uh, emphasis put into that, or that was an area uh, in the '80s that was considered uh, valuable to evaluate or look at? That was growing in prominence back then um, with sports psych and relaxation and visualization uh, back then. That was an up-and-coming field. And, in fact, one of the guys out there who became one of my best friends, Mike Mahoney, was doing his master's uh, research and was testing us and playing with us and doing all kinds of experiments with us uh, from, from the standpoint of tricking us into lifting heavier weights uh, I'll explain that in a little bit, uh, and, and teaching us how to relax, uh, visualization, and, and also uh, pay attention to the voices in your head, uh, things like that, because even, you know, there's always self-doubt that comes in, or, or you hear voices in your head about this, that, and the other, and how to acknowledge them and, and move on, you know, whether you pay attention to them or put them away for the time being, and different different things to deal with those kind of self-doubts and and things like that. So it was a very big uh, part of of our program, and they, like I said, it was new, so no one knew exactly what to do. But uh, it was very enjoyable to be part of that process. Okay, cool. Um, now it's already well documented your '84 Olympics and the injuries you sustained. Uh, I don't really want to go into that. I think that must be a painful thought for you. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I want to look at uh, the comeback from that. That interests me more, actually. Okay. Um, what I mean, to me, uh, one of the things that got me excited about sitting down to talk to you today, I mean, what a success story. Um, you know, there's the Iron Mind Journal, things like that. And I got to believe you must have had an Iron Mind to come back to training. How were those training sessions, those first few training sessions? No, well, first of all, thanks for the, the kind words. I don't know, Iron Mind or Concrete in the Head, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I back then they used to have these things called um, state games. And they had a lot of them. I don't think it was in every state, but they had a lot of stuff. And Illinois was the, called the Prairie State Games. And let's see, was this 85? I was in a cast oof, from uh, through November of that year with my arm and elbow surgery in November, blah, blah, blah. And in the summertime, I was just exercising in my basement and the, back to the local weightlifting club. And I was just doing it because I knew that uh, strength, I needed strength through the full range of motion. 
I hated bodybuilding as much as you could possibly dislike it. Bored. Yeah, that'd be a better word. Just bored. Mm-hmm. So I never was into that kind of stuff. I had to do it for the reasons of keeping your, you know, your body strong. But other than that, just for an end of itself, I didn't like it. So my buddies were competing at competing at the Prairie State Games, and I went just as a team member. I, I lost weight, actually, from 198 to 165. And I was just trying to do stuff for health, do exercises for health. And I liked the lifts, and I could do them. I didn't try to go heavy um, just because I couldn't at first of all. But then I was progressing up to where I could do the full squat, the full snatch, the full clean, blah, blah, blah. And I went to support my buddies and started lifting um, at the at the gym and had a kit, Rachel then. So I was trying to you know survive and make money to, to raise a family. Um, so I started out just lifting uh, for them. I remember old Marty Cipher and Smitty, they're both passed away now, but they were, I w- couldn't wait to see them in, I think this was 86, 85, yeah, 85. In December, I qualified for the, the uh, what used to be, now uh, it used to be called the Mid-America Open, which now has turned into the, the uh, oh gosh, the junior, uh, then it turned into junior nationals, now it's the American, now it's the American Open. American yeah, Open, yeah. yeah. And I, I turned around, you know, they, they saw me. Marty's Marty, Smitty, how you doing? They turned around, oh, you look terrible. And this is a guy like Mr. Clean, you know, <laughs> uh, big as Mr. Clean was, but older, like Mr. Clean's dad saying, oh, you look terrible. And I said, oh, man. <laughs> but I was a little skinny. I looked yeah. like a tadpole with a big head and a little bitty body compared to what they're used to. But I, I started just staying in my basement, training with these guys for 86 and then back in the day, there was no internet, so you'd get your quarterly as a member of the weightlifting association, and you get your you get your quarterly results of people. And then at the year end results, I started at eighty six. I realized that hmm, I was doing triples with weights that were like third third in the country, and I wasn't really even trying. I was just exercising. I thought maybe I could. Uh, Maybe I could make a comeback here if I tried, you know, and, and did did regular and you know. So, so then I kind of changed the rules on my then wife and uh, made a comeback, and then won my first nationals in '87, in the spring of '87, and uh, so that sort of began the comeback. But I never looked at, um, I, I I didn't even think about really that the, the weight I had hurt, since I was such bad shape because of my knees. Um, at the Olympic Games, I was on paper, and just a few months before, I was slated to perhaps earn a silver medal if all things went well with with my best lifts, not not a PR, but just with my best lifts. And, but I was in such bad shape, things fell off the wall with the prednisone, uh, getting Cushing syndrome, blah blah blah, that um, my tendon ruptured, and that's what led to you know the, the accident and the injuries, um, and the rehab. But I never looked at it because from from then, as far as I improved slowly in my training, and it was at that point I was coaching myself and uh, just kind of regularly just moving up, and it never really was an issue or a ceiling or anything. I knew that I was happy when I beat, particularly that the weight that I injured myself with, but it was never. Uh, I always looked forward. I didn't spend any time looking back. Um, you know, learning from the past, uh, to be sure, but, but never being limited by the past. And 
I, I gotta ask, I mean, did you revisit, or, or maybe I should say it this way, was coming back to training, was there an added level of pain? Or had you gotten, you escaped that? Oh, for the most part, what was, was cool, I was, uh, there was no pain at the beginning. That, that, um, that there wasn't any pain, really. I, I talked to my surgeons, um, and they, um, we talked about what my long-term goals were and my short-term goals. Like, for instance, my elbow. I wanted to make sure I had full extension of my elbow. And the long-term effects, he said, well, that would be an unstable and a painful elbow when you get older. Okay, fine. Well, um, we had he made sure that I got full extension in my elbow, and then I was able to continue. And there was there was a time when I would be do a contest, and then I'd disappear for a while, have to do a contest, and disappear for a while. What was happening was over the course of time after '88. Now, from '80, this doesn't this applies to only after '88. I was my elbow was breaking down, and, and, or my so I was going. I was getting surgery. I'd be able to peak for a year, and then I'd have to get surgery to get my elbow or my knee cleaned out. And so they thought I was avoiding drug testing. But that's that was that was the the reason was I had so many surgeries, and I got roadmaps all over my body to, to show for that. But what I was doing in '84 through '88 was there was not many air conditioning. So I was making more international trips. Um, Cuba and different things back in the late 80s then, mid to late 80s, or late 80s, 88, 89. And there wasn't much air conditioning, so I was learning to train in a hot environment. Also, too, about um, I accidentally stumbled on metabolic training, meaning you, you whether you take a two-minute rest or three-minute rest. I was taking three-minute rest. No, I would start my sets on three minutes. Or a minute and a half. I'd play with that a little bit between a minute and a half, and three minutes, because that was the rest. In internet in in United States, I was following myself, so I had to be ready to go in three minutes. Okay, and that's why I, I started. But I found out later that oh, that's exactly what you want to do. Eighty-five percent of your ATP is regenerated, and uh, after three minutes of of uh, you know within three minutes. And so I was like, okay, well, I didn't know that at the time. I was just training because I knew I had to do that for, uh, for what was real in competition. And things sometimes things were hot. And here in Illinois, it was uh, hot in the gym we had. We didn't have air conditioning and we didn't have – we had a little pathetic heating system. So I was exposed to the elements except for wind and rain. Um, so I learned to never be you know, – train myself never to be tired in competitions and whether – like for if you had to do stairs, didn't matter anymore. So I was I was doing that um, kind of training, and so I was engrossed in that, and I was pushing myself as hard as I could, employing Newton's, te you know, Harvey's teachings and Mahoney's teachings, and just pushing myself as hard as I absolutely could. Uh, and you mentioned uh, you came back and won the '87 nationals. Uh, you were self-coached. Uh, how was the transition transition from being coached to being coach? Pretty much looked at it as a business because I still, at that point, I had, it, it, I guess my whole motivation with lifting, uh, on, on, probably to a fault, was my whole self-worth was tied up in how I did for for lifting. So I looked at it as my business, even though I wasn't making any money. Um and it was my validation, self-validation. So I used Harvey as a consultant, and I kind of looked at my training, meaning I'd call him every couple months, talk, we'd talk a little bit, or 
or I felt like my legs weren't getting strong or something seemed to be not quite right. What do you, you know, I'd run by a certain program that I thought would, would work. Um, so it wasn't, actually I was glad because it allowed me to kind of explore myself and push myself as hard as I could and wanted to. And I guess being the ultimate individualist, I only had myself to, to, to blame and or, you know, come good or bad kind of thing. I could take my own, uh, what do you call it? They couldn't hide because it was my fault or, uh, you know, hey, I did a good job, you know. Um, and I looked at my training as being kind of a, I don't know, for the sake of a better term, a tractor tire tread approach. In other words, you, you rolling averages keep increasing. Um, and so I was focused on that, and gradually my volume and intensity would, would increase, but then I'd have to, then through what I learned from Harvey and Miller was about peaking strategies, and I could peak uh, when I needed to, uh, whether it be for a big meet or a big big peaking process, or if it was a small meet, then it would be a small peak or, you know, or a train through kind of thing. But I looked at it as business, and in retrospect, I wish I would have enjoyed the fact of just being stronger. I, I wish I would have enjoyed the fact of just being strong and healthy more than I did and, and take a little more enjoyment out of even a bad workout. Hey, there's not – now being 55 is like, hey, man, there's not a there's not a 55-year-old guy in a gym that would take one of these other guys' 20-year-old workouts, a bad workout, and wish they could do that again, you know? Yeah, yeah, I see I what had, you're saying. I wouldn't say I had the enjoyment for me was the actual lift and the PRs and, and the quest for the PRs and good at the next meet, but there was like no pausing and and uh, no really. Uh, I, I don't want to say no enjoyment because that's wrong, but it was enjoyment for the reasons of lifting. I I love lifting, and that's what I wanted to do. When we talk about you know coming into the gym at this point, did you have a really strict blueprint? Were you writing yourself programs, or was it just about okay today I'm going to come in? I know I'm going to work on the clean and jerk or the snatch, and and you go about it. No, well, I had a I had a program. I, I drew up my programs, and at some point they were getting all these convoluted programs. Man, they were really in, intricate. And then I realized at one point, I said, "Hey, man, I'm spending more time." writing these programs up to me and lifting. So I just, first of all, if I had to simplify these com complicated, I mean, you had K factors and you had, oh my God, exercise. You had, what, there's an infinite number of exercises you can do. And you can't, well, so far, you can't do all the exercises all the time. You know, that that's wrong. Um, I would go in and I had a, I would have a general plan for the month and the two month that was got down to. And then it was a simplified program of what I typically did would I'd be say I lift off the floor, and then I would then lift off, pull off the blocks, or vice versa. I'd pull off the blocks, and, and then lift, or then do pulls from the floor, and then I would do some sort of squatting, and then pressing and jerk, kind of some sort of overhead work. It got to be to where it was pretty uh, simplified program, basically, and I paid attention to my rolling averages, and I found out later that that's what the Russians were were doing. Um, as opposed to a real convoluted program. And I think there's been some, I think the literature bear out that some of the periodization has been over overblown. It's important because you've got to peak and you have to know when your volume needs to be up and down, blah, blah, blah. But I think you get caught up in the science of it all and forget that, hey, you know, the best way to get better in your lifting is to do it, not to do the programming. 
I, I think more and more uh, as I get older, um, and I think it's probably something that should even affect at the senior levels, but it, it's understanding how you feel or your lifter feels that morning or that afternoon. That's, that's true. Yeah, and, you, you have to leave room to, to allow for the, I think they call it the nano cycle change. In other words, change for the day. <laughs> so um, you competed well into years after most lifters would compete at the senior level. Uh, most famously, uh, you were 41 years of age at the Nationals uh, alongside your daughter. She was 17, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Both of you competing at a national senior level. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of ideas about training as you get older. How, how do you approach training in the last few years? Uh, mainly try to Are save you... yourself so you can train again the next day. Um, okay. Um, yeah, so that was a – I guess pain avoidance is what I uh, – you can still train intense, but you got to pick your battles and not go to the well as you as a master – you know, you remember that you could go to the well pretty often uh, per month, whether, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, you get nutsed up and you excited and you, you go for it. But then, and then who knows, the next week or even the next day, you come back and do it again in something. Well, as a master, you do that. And then all of a sudden you realize you might feel good you know, healthy and everything, feel good, rested, but you got nothing or, or, you know, 85% is like hard or 90%. You can't, so you have to learn that you can't go to the well very often. And then you better not max out twice. Uh, I mean, two weeks before your master's competition, because whatever you did that day, you ain't going to touch. You'll be close, but you, you're not going to do better. Or if you're lucky, you're going to do that. So I'd say as a master's, you have to really, uh, um, pay attention to that. And I was fortunate enough at 40 and 41 when uh, I competed with Rachel, I had been retired enough that I was still catching the, catching the, not at the last when I actually went to the Nationals, but the year before, I was still catching things on the upswing, meaning I was still uh, coming back and in, in pretty strong. And at, at 40, I made, the year before we actually lifted with her, I qualified for the Nationals with her, but the time she lifted, Let's see, the time I was going to lift was going to conflict with what she needed to do to make the junior world team. So I, uh, I, was, I would have really done kind of well at the Nationals. Not placed, but I'd have been up there in the mix. But, uh, so I elected not to lift because it would have, Rachel might not, it wouldn't have been fair to Rachel. So I hung on for a year, and that year nearly killed me. And then that was the year that I was like, that was my last Nationals, cause, meaning my meniscus and my back and my elbow. That was that was a painful year to hold on, held on, and then that was it, uh, as far as hard lifting goes. Now I want to change the subject to a different aspecting, and that is your blocks, the DC blocks. Uh, how did that come about? Well, on the training center, um, we we trained with wooden blocks of different shapes and sizes, and they were heavy. And you moved around, and they also didn't interlock. So if you stack to do a clean workout, you could get one block, you know, and, and uh, put the drop the weight down on it, whatever. But if you want to do high block snatch work, they weren't connected. So you know, we would put the weights back down somewhat carefully. But if you missed the, the lift, they'd come crashing down, and we'd have these great crashes. And um, all you try to do is get away. Uh, 
And then we'd laugh about because the crash looked pretty spectacular. And then at home when I trained, it was I made some old blocks. It was the same same kind of deal. And block training was very big in Eastern Europe. And um, so I thought. And then when I had my clinic where I was training Rachel when she was a youngster, we made wooden blocks that kind of were the U.S. soccer model with little pegs, two little pegs that you you'd that would fit into the piece below and you can move up and down two inches, but they sort of locked together. So I've been wanting to figure out a way to make blocks for a really long time, but you know, they're heavy and I did make them and they were heavy. But then at one particular time I looked at, uh, I was standing by this beautiful set of wooden blocks that were kind of big, but they're really well made. And then right next to it, and this was, uh, about six years ago, uh, I, uh, Looked at a right right next to the blocks were were these high tech plates uh, which are made out of recycled plastics. So I said, hmm, if I can make that pointing to the you know pointing to myself and pointing to the blocks out of that meaning the high tech plates, we got something. Uh-huh. I might have something here. So I contacted the owner of high tech plates, uh, Mercedes Dickerson. She knew she turned me on to the manufacturer. And over a Memorial Day weekend, I made a wooden mock-up of them and flew out to Utah, met with the engineers, and we tweaked the design, came up with what's – eventually came up with – well, we came up with the prototype model, and then, then we tweaked it since then, and now we have the blocks. And the funny thing is my wife came across looking at my old weightlifting journals and stuff. There was a picture of blocks with the underneath surface, very similar to what was made out of wood from 19 – 81. <laughs> so I've been thinking about it for a while. You know, I really would like to bring you back to talk about training from the blocks. I, I, what I'd like to do with you is have you come back on the show and talk a bit more about specific experiences um, and also training philosophy, things like that. Um, I'd, I'm also planning on getting your daughter Rachel on here cool. to hear about her experiences. <laughs> Um, I'd love to have you both on. That would be interesting, having a father-daughter team. But what was it like raising her with weightlifting? Was well, What I want to say is, was it something that you saw your baby and you said, she's going to be a world champion? Or did you say to yourself, she's going to do whatever she wants to do? Well, that quickly became known that she's going to do whatever she wants to do. Um, but, okay. but um, she was like, how old was she? Eight? eight or seven or something like that. And when she was younger, oh, uh, yeah, she was eight or seven or eight years old, and she would want to come to the gym because I was spending some time in the gym. And uh, she'd bring her toys and stuff in there, and she'd roll weights around. And uh, in the meantime, I'm playing with her dolls and trucks and everything. You know, we kind of she was kind of a that kind of girl. Just And I didn't have a boy at the time, so, you know, dolls and trucks seemed to work together, the whole thing. But um, but her also her toys were were weights. So I taught her, and she wanted to kind of emulate what I was doing. So I had the little little. They were way smaller than milk crates, but they had that same kind of plasticky shape. And with a, a dowel rod, and I made some wood things so she could. Uh, they didn't have plastic plates back then; they were full size. So we just made some weights, and then that that were just super light. But then she could play, you know, just play. And she uh, actually. In a year, uh, actually moved pretty well, and then so I kind of taught her from the top down position. She moved pretty well, 
Well, her mom at the time didn't like her doing weightlifting. So she, she did do a contest, and I think she did 22 and 22.5 and 27.5 and, and a clean and jerk, and then promptly retired. But, um, <laughs> but she had. And this was at what age nine, again? Nine. Nine years old. Her okay. first year, yeah. And um, she was mortified when she missed the clean and jerk of 30, I think. She was mortified. So it was terrible. <laughs> and um, That's funny. So, what, so she came back and played soccer, softball, and all that stuff at like 14. And uh, she came into the clinic where I had, and I was teaching kids how to lift. And, oh, Rachel, you remember how to do that? You know, clean and jerk? She said, oh, yeah, yeah. You want to try it? Oh, sure. So she went and the first time back. And she's okay. She's like 14, 13, perhaps. She uh, she uh, cleaned and like 50 kilos. And I was like, holy Christ, this would have got like won the Junior Olympics, like which happened like a, a week or two previously. I never pushed her, you know, uh, but I did. I didn't want to push her, never thought of, but I just knew that she moved well. And that was kind of the introduction to like, well, if you want to train kids before puberty that's the best time to train them to do, do the movements right because neuro neuromuscularly they're they're trained the neuromuscular patterns but so then it was just uh if she liked it i didn't try to push her and i thought she pushed herself but i would nudge her along but she was good right off the bat so she could compete and then and then it became a, a interesting relationship but good one but uh, it was how to coach your daughter so there was like, it was a, we call it a schizophrenic relationship. We'd go into a car and there'd be like me as dad and coach and her as the daughter and athlete. So all, all, all four of us would get in the car and, and <laughs> take up the front seat, you know. And then, who, yeah, who drove? <laughs> dad would drive, but then uh, <laughs> we talked to the daughter. He never, the coach never stopped talking about weightlifting. So it, it, it'll be interesting. I think I'll do it without prompting her. I'll just tell her to be nice. That's all. <laughs> get her, get her <laughs> okay. thoughts, but it was very rewarding. And what's nice now is, I thought I would have taught her better to not use weightlifting as a means of support. But with CrossFit and everything, um, it seemed like there's a resurgence in weightlifting, and I'm glad to see that she's in the sport. And so I didn't coach her out of it, and that she, and then all from a standpoint of being dad, that she's able to make a living teaching it. So that that's pretty cool. Uh, Derek, great having you. Oh, thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it.